I'm Kim Singletary. And I'm Rich Collins with Biz New Orleans Magazine. Welcome to Biz Talks. Each week, we reach beyond the pages of Biz New Orleans Magazine to bring you in-depth conversations with members of the business community. From the names everyone knows to the ones destined to make their mark, we'll dive into the top issues, best practices, successes, and failures of every industry that calls Southeast Louisiana home. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is James Martin, CEO of Gulfwind Technology. Martin specializes in the design and manufacturing of large rotor wind turbines, and he's a veteran of the renewable energy business. He's here to discuss the future of the wind industry in Louisiana. James Martin, welcome to the podcast. Excellent. Thank you very much, Rich. Great to be here. All right. Well, first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about Gulf Wind Technology? Of course, yeah. So um, I moved to New Orleans back in 2010, um, back when the U.S. was really getting excited about um, offshore wind, both onshore and offshore at the time. Um, although it was a slight false start for off, there's been a huge boom in onshore wind uh, over the past 10 years. So I've had the uh, great opportunity of growing an engineering team, growing a technology center, and growing a good number of partners in the city, actually based at NASA Mishu, um, for a company called GE Renewable Energy and LM Windpower. Nice. Okay, so what are the challenges and what are the opportunities related to building offshore wind turbines in the Gulf? All right. So this is a great topic because the wind conditions in the Gulf are like nowhere else in the States, let's say. There are comparable places in the rest of the world. But what you've got in the Gulf is you've got wind, um, albeit you've got an average low wind speed for most of the year. And then you have, obviously, our peak events during hurricane season. So that presents a little bit of a challenge for engineers and designers who are actually manufacturing uh, these offshore turbines. You need something that can be have a nice um, large sail area or a lot of swept area to capture that light wind. And then they need to be really robust and resilient against the 140, 150 mile an hour gusts that can rock through in uh, our summer conditions. Well, that begs the question, what does happen when you have a hurricane? Do they just spin really fast? Yeah, well, this is an interesting, there's a lot of study going into this. And actually, it's one of the objectives of Gulf Wind Technology is to work on removing the technical barriers to getting these turbines safely operating in the Gulf. So at the moment, uh, you could imagine a scenario where your turbine is um, generating power, it's, it's, it's well behaved, everything's calm. A, t- a hurricane comes through, one of the things that might happen is that the power grid might be knocked out, you know, much like happens with the homes when you're onshore. And the way that a turbine actually protects itself against gusts is it actually pitches its blades and turns the head. If you can imagine like the, the old uh, turbines um, back in the day in the Netherlands that you see, You've got, they, you tend to have a fixed blade or a fixed rotor. Right. The modern ones, actually, like you would look out of a, if you're on an aircraft and you look out over the wing and you've got a lot going on, you've got the flaps that move and you're actually adjusting that airfoil depending on your wind speed, your, your, right. your speed that you're traveling. So turbines work in a very similar way. If the wind gets too high, you actually rotate the blades almost like to take power away and you end up protecting the turbine. If you didn't have power, so if you have a condition where you drop a grid, um, that actually puts the turbines at a little bit of risk. So you've got to actually work on both systems, controls, 
smart ways to actually make sure that you keep power. Instead of generating power, you'd actually have to have a backup system to look after the turbine through something like a hurricane. So that's an example of one of the challenges that you've got. Oh, all right. So back to the big picture, though, as, as we're trying to get this nascent industry started, what is the big picture? We had that false start 10 years ago. What's yeah. going to lead to an actual start this time? So one of the big reasons is that the cost of energy has come down all over the last 10 years. So if you think about um, turbines are an energy source. So someone's going to choose to invest in that source of energy based on the price of power that it can, can give. And, you know, its competitors are things like solar. It could be a gas turbine or it could be any of the traditional energy forms. So what's been happening is that as these turbines have been solving the problems, they've been getting uh, more powerful. So they've been getting more efficient, almost like a car would burn maybe less gasoline as the technology develops. These wind turbines are getting more efficient as the years go on. And now you're in a position where actually they're very, very effective to invest in for any sort of power generation. A um, couple of the challenges, obviously, it's not windy all the time. So you're never going to have a scenario where everything is powered just by wind turbines. You've got to solve the problem of having a complete energy portfolio with, and actually very complementary with traditional forms of energy, hydrocarbons and, and gas, along with solar, along with wind. And actually all of those energy sources working together is kind of the, the framework that you want to be pushing for. Well, forgive me for my ignorance, but when you generate wind energy, I assume it can be stored somewhere. It doesn't have to be as long as the wind is, is turning and the lights are on. I mean, I assume it goes off into the grid and gets stored somewhere. Is that how it works? So that's an interesting one. There's, um, that is not commonplace at the moment. You're exactly right. There, that's one of the big challenges is energy storage. So one of the things you've got, if we take it from the first principle, so you've got a, uh, a turbine that could be out in the Gulf of Mexico on a structure similar to an oil and gas platform you're generating the power and then you're transmitting it through a cable. So first off, you've got to have that grid connection to somewhere. Um, now at the moment, there are no industrial um, ready storage systems. There's a lot of storage that are actually being prototyped um, from things like batteries or um, actually pressurizing vessels, or even they're looking into transferring that electricity into um, hydrogen and actually storing that hydrogen in tanks or transmitting that hydrogen um, through, through pipelines. So storage uh, is actually one of the big problems and why any sort of power proposition needs to have a good balance of um, turbines or generators that can turn on immediately and turbines and generators that only work um, whether it's windy or whether the, um, whether there's, the sun is out for things like solar. Understood. Okay, as we look at Louisiana and this changing climate where you suddenly see, you know, a whole series of stories in the daily paper, interviewing a lot of experts about how this is finally the moment it's going to happen. You sense that those decades of resistance and lobbying against it are all sort of giving way. What, what are the first steps that we're going to see? What, when's the first turbine going to go up? What, how is this, how is this going to manifest itself? All right. So first off, if we just talk about the USA, you're going to be installing um, uh, the um, additional turbines, I would say, new offshore turbines in about in 2024. Um, but I should preface by saying there's actually uh, five turbines that are actually spinning off the East Coast that actually had 
um, were primarily built and installed by Louisiana companies, and not many people know that. So you've got, um, even though it's a small fleet, you know, the turbines that have been generating, there's been a lot of knowledge and a lot of learning from that. And of course, the onshore market, um, there's over 70,000 turbines in the USA today onshore. So leveraging all of that expertise, um, all of that industry expertise, and applying it to the next launch. So really, we're not starting from fresh. We're starting from having a lot of expertise, both in Louisiana, in domestic US. And then obviously, we can look at the what's been having overseas. So the you know offshore wind is a huge market for a number of different countries. Um, and so we'll really be pulling on all of that expertise as well. But primarily, it's going to be homegrown. There's a lot of technical expertise. There's a lot of transferable expertise from offshore oil and gas, which is one of the things I'm most excited about for Louisiana and especially the Gulf Coast here, is if we apply the expertise from oil and gas into our approach with offshore wind, it really is a fantastic recipe for success. So it sounds like there will not be a turbine off the coast of Louisiana in 2022 or 2023. It's, it's, it's in the future. It's in the future. That's exactly right. There's a number of challenges that need to be solved before the first turbine comes up in the Gulf. Um, there's, a, there's projections that it's certainly going to be before 2030. And I think the faster that we can solve the problems, you know, keeping offshore wind back, um, it could be as soon as 2026, 2027, if we really align uh, everything from policy and permitting and technology um, and start to get into a, a supply chain of um, workforce that can be ready to support it. Okay, I wanted to ask you about that. How important is this whole workforce transition to the emergence of the industry in our state? I think it's really, really important. And it's something that we've got um, probably is our absolute jewel in the crown there is the workforce that is currently expert, uh, decades of expertise in offshore oil and gas. Um, if you could think about um, you're installing um, a very similar structure, you know, albeit a very different shape, but you've got a monopile or a jacket, um, you've got to do um, seabed surveys, you want to do the migratory... Wait, did you say monopile and what was the other thing you said? The technology that oil and gas used to place basically substations and um, uh, oil rigs in the Gulf is basically a it's a it's a structure that's attached to the seabed. Okay. A monopile you could think of as a, a tower, just a single tube that's actually in maybe less than uh, 30 meters or 100 feet of water. And then you have what they call jackets, which might be essentially like a tripod. And it might be designed for slightly uh, deeper water or something with a bit more complicated conditions. But but these are very that they are two very fundamental ingredients to offshore wind is basically how you attach it to the seabed to keep it stable. Understood. Okay. So those same two technologies that we use for oil rigs is exactly the same as what you would use to build the uh, turbines. Very, very similar. And there's some fantastic companies. There's a great uh, local company here called Keystone Engineering that actually specialize in that. So they're a homegrown. They did the Block Island offshore farm. And I know they're putting a lot of energy into uh, looking at the foundations for the future turbines here. Is where, Where's Block Island? Is that... Yeah, so Block Island off of the East Coast. That's, that's the five turbines off the East Coast? That's correct, yeah. And those are the only five turbines off the coast of anywhere in the United States of America right now? They, they absolutely are, yeah. And that's the, the ratio is, um, is pretty wide. So 70,000 onshore, five offshore. So it's really going to be um, looking at the objectives that are coming from the federal level and at the state level 
Um, one of the magic numbers that you'll hear is, is gigawatts. You know, how many gigawatts of power are going to be installed by what time? So at the moment, we've got the objective of the, you know, 30 gigawatts by 2030. So that would relate to maybe two to two and a half thousand turbines by 2030 in, in the domestic U.S., Understood. So again, you were talking about how important schools are and workforce transition is. Talk a little bit about the kind of things that could happen over the next few years to prepare us better for for this as we've got unemployed oil and gas workers that could become relevant to this new industry. So I think the the most critical thing is exposure to just how similar uh, working on offshore wind farms is to to offshore oil and gas. And I think once the workforce um, sees that there's a lot of transferable skills, that this isn't an either-or equation, this is an and. So this is, you know, having the skills and the work with oil and gas and getting into to, to wind. Um, and I think everything from the colleges, uh, from the development centres, from the universities, um, these are all going to be very key institutions that make, you know, make people aware of how, you know, how similar the skills are. Um, and there's a lot of work going on with uh, Geno Inc. and Geno Wind, um, actually to bring consortias of experts together to start to demystify offshore wind, essentially. So to explain exactly what does it take to install an offshore turbine, what sort of uh, barges might be needed, what sort of cranes and jack-up vessels might be needed, um, how, la- how you would actually service a turbine. For example, you're going to have to have workboats that transport workers out to do maintenance on the gearboxes, on the blades, on the foundations. So there's really, you know, a, a lot of ways that we can um, open people up to being aware of what needs to happen on an offshore wind farm. You mentioned something before we started recording about how there was a decade ago, a, a false start, let's say, a, 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 on, the, on the beginning of the wind industry in Louisiana and in the country. And then one of the companies that was excited about it was Dow, and the reason is that the turbines themselves are made out of resin, which is something I never considered at all. Of course, it makes sense. They have to be light. I was picturing it just metal. Uh, but that makes me think that if you look at the whole the whole ecosystem of the Louisiana oil and gas industry, of course, you get the whole um, petrochemical side of things downstream. So this is an opportunity for that fa- that aspect of the industry to be involved in in the wind side of things because of the raw materials required to make the the turbines. Absolutely, you're, you're spot on, Rich. So the the blades themselves, as you say, are manufactured out of um, resin, uh, resin and foam and uh, carbon fiber and glass fiber. Um, they're put together. It's essentially like a, a huge boat hull. If you think about a wind turbine blade, is like two boats um, sandwiched together with a big structural I-beam in the middle, essentially, you know, like an aircraft wing. And then you've got um, other aspects of it. You know, you've got bearings and gearboxes, generators, uh, what they call a cell, which is like the sort of um, the enclosure at the top of the pole. And then you've got the steel in the tower and the steel in the foundations. But you absolutely, there's a lot of material that goes into these blades and a lot of the material and the fabrication is actually here on the Gulf Coast as well, um, especially metal fabrication, um, especially all of the oil and gas uh, byproducts that go into the 
the resins and the adhesives and the lubricants that go into those turbines. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a quite an exciting technology. It's quite an exciting piece of equipment um, that people will be able to relate with when they really pick under the hood of it. It's interesting that, that the turbines are made out of oil and gas. Yeah, that's it. And there is a, there's a lot of work going in to um, looking in the same way that they do with offshore um, oil and gas is um, end of life. So obviously handling the asset at the end of life. And there's a lot of technology going into making certain aspects of the turbine recyclable. Um, so you could actually, uh, at the end of its maybe 20, 30, 40 year lifespan, as much as that these days, um, you know, that you can actually repurpose or re-engineer certain parts of the asset to make it um, last longer or be repurposed into another industry. This is related to what you just said, but slightly off script from what I was planning to ask. But can you talk a little bit about how the, the turbines keep getting bigger and bigger? I heard a story recently that the, the man who was one of the pioneers 30, 40 years ago predicted, oh, the maximum size we could ever reach is, is blah, blah, blah. And now we're, we're uh, exponentially bigger than that and it's, they're going to continue to get bigger. How does that affect things? That's really interesting. So the way that we um, like to think about it is all about the power. Like we talked about the gigawatts earlier. So how much, how much power can one turbine create? So if you think about when they first started, they might be less than one megawatt. Um, you know, even down to 200 kilowatts. So, and now they're up in 12 to 14 megawatts. So they're, you know, maybe 10, 15 times more powerful. So you get more electricity. One turbine has got the power of maybe 10 or 15 turbines that might've been there 10 or 15 years ago. And you're right, the scale factor is also very important. So a blade length, um, a blade which was maybe the length of your standard fishing boat once upon a time, now you've got blades that are the length of a football field. Um, so you've really got, you know, the, you know, these are giant structures, but they are ever so efficient now. So they're very, very powerful, very efficient structures. But of course, the challenge is, is how you transport them. Right. There's only a certain size component that you can ship by road because you might have to get under bridges or, uh, or widths or escort constraints. So what you tend to do is some of the uh, offshore structures, you either manufacture and fabricate locally. So you really, what you'll see is a lot of uh, manufacturing facilities or port facilities all happening very close to where the turbines are being installed. Um, or you actually end up with some technologies that allow people, things to be shipped in pieces. Um, so if you took something like the tower, that's more than likely going to be um, barged with a, a big steel plate. And then when you get closer to the location, you actually roll that into a tower section and weld it, and then it becomes a piece of a wind turbine. Um, so all of these challenges, you know, this management of the supply chain for the USA um, is all undergoing at the moment. And it's something that certainly here in Louisiana on the Gulf Coast, if you look at all of our industry, we have all of the skills. So we have um, shipbuilding, we have fabrication, we have welding, we have inspection, we have a strong manufacturing workforce. We have a lot of port side real estate to do staging um, and actually setting up of these structures. So, you know, with a dynamic vision, you could see that you've got this, uh, you're managing both the supply chain, so the import of materials and the fabrication, you know, having the workforce do the fabrication and the assembly. And then obviously the dispatch out into where the, the wind is um, with the vessels and the barges. 
And that's why you feel like Louisiana can be a, uh, a national or world leader in this industry. Absolutely. I don't think there's anywhere that I'm aware of that has such a transposable workforce and infrastructure. It's already set up for offshore oil and gas. And it, it really is a very similar ingredients um, to, to be successful in offshore wind. Do you think that the money that there is to be made from the energy titans that may or may not get into this business is enough now that it will insulate this from the danger of politics in the sense that if you know we have a governor right now who's been very supportive of the industry, but who knows what will happen two years from now. Is there enough momentum now where it's not going to stop or could things grind to a halt again? So my personal opinion is that we've got enough uh, support on both sides of the aisle. You know, I think it's a really efficient um, power source generation. My personal opinion is that we've, you know, certainly the city of New Orleans and the state of Louisiana has been really supportive um, of this industry. Um, I don't see that this is going to be another false start. I think we've got um, the everything's locked and loaded and everything's on path to um, industry launch on the East Coast. Um, and actually, there's some fantastic studies that are being done by BOEM, uh, who are based here locally as well, and NREL, which is a government lab, um, that show that it's a really, uh, the economics of this power source is now, it's now arrived. So um, like we said at the beginning of the, the podcast, we certainly got some challenges. We're not going to gloss over that. You know, it's going to take a number of years to line up uh, and execute all of the projects and de-risk the technology to get it ready. Um, but you've got a lot of momentum now and you've got a lot of interest from the developers, the operators and the energy companies that are ultimately going to be running these assets um, at a price point that makes sense. So it's, it's really, I think, it, I think it's launched, uh, Rich. That's my personal opinion. The, the train has left the station. I believe so, absolutely. When will we have a, a sixth turbine somewhere in the country? Is, that, is, is it scheduled? It is scheduled, yeah. The, like I say, the first um, turbine installation should be completed in 2024. Um, and so that's really not too far away. And I think there's already talks, there's some quite uh, dynamic talks going on about running a pilot actually here on the Gulf Coast, which I think will be a fantastic way to actually showcase uh, the technology and get people familiar with it. What does that mean? They're going to do a... Yeah, I think certainly that uh, something that Gulf Wind Technologies uh, is working with um, some additional partners on is looking at the opportunities to run a demo turbine, essentially like a, a pilot turbine. Um, there's a lot of interest. Uh, it's certainly not, uh, there's no date for commissioning yet, but it's something that would be, um, I think, really exciting for the city to get up close and personal with and for the actual industry, the, you know, the local industry, to understand the, the constituent elements of a turbine and what it looks like in the flesh. So it would be on land somewhere? It would be, uh, there's a number of scenarios. So you'd want to have it uh, you know, on land or near shore um, to get the most out of it, I imagine, before you take the risk of putting it out in the Gulf of Mexico. I got you. Just, just to make sure I understand you correctly, as far as across the entire country, though, we're not expecting any more turbines until two years from now. That's correct. There's, there's, the, the rate that we're installing uh, onshore wind turbines is almost unstoppable. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, this is offshore. Yeah. Exactly. Really, so, but yeah, offshore, um, it's really just priming the supply chain. There's a lot of materials. There's a lot of um, staging areas. There's a lot of a, a grid connection. And uh, there's a lot of, um, but yeah, 2024 will be when we likely see the next one installed in the US. Great. Okay. I've got two more questions for you. One is you'd mentioned something to me offline, <laughs> a quote 
uh, you talked about the path to the green electron. Can, can you explain what, what, what you meant by that phrase? All right. So really, if you think, uh, and it's a little bit like we touched on earlier. So um, if you want to generate uh, renewable energy and store renewable energy, um, you, you, you want to be, and if we take the example of hydrogen, so you want to be able to generate uh, that hydrogen, essentially, with a green or renewable energy source. So you can, and, and this comes back to your other question about storage. So the, the thing that everyone's looking into now is um, what, um, if you do create, it takes power to create hydrogen. Um, you could generate hydrogen with any energy source, but it's not going to be green hydrogen. It's not going to be a green electron. And so what we're quite excited about is creating a, a framework or a pilot that actually takes um, green energy capture, and that could be solar, it could be wind, um, and then you convert it into a storage, whether it's in a, uh, a battery or whether it's hydrogen or it's direct transmission. But you really want to follow the full thread of the equation from green capture to green um, uh, use of the, of the power, essentially. Understood. So that's an ideal to shoot for. Yeah, exactly. You've got to, you've, in um, my experience, you've got to have a vision for the reality to come to the table. So this is about painting a very realistic vision that people can anchor into, that people realize they can be part of. Um, and then we need to demonstrate it through running a pilot, um, demonstrating the economics on it, demonstrating the workforce transition, and ultimately uh, taking that leap and making it real. Understood. My last question for you is, as you look at your industry's future, what's the one thing that makes you most worried and what's the one thing that makes you feel most optimistic? So let's start with the most worried. So you do have an aspect of, uh, there's an answer in two, two parts. So um, the price of, um, if you look at um, the price of uh, energy from a wind turbine, um, it's a very different um, value proposition to um, the margins maybe that you make in, any, in, a, in a comparable hydrocarbon energy source. So therefore, it's very affected by commodity prices. And what I mean that is that if, you, if the price of the components that make the turbine uh, scale in maybe the way that we've seen the last couple of years, it, it very much can make the difference between something being worth doing and not doing. And so you could think of that as a headwind. Okay, so there's a there's a significant headwind that the industry has felt in the last couple of years, um, albeit maybe linked to supply chain challenges from COVID and all sorts of constraints. But it's actually put the price of some very important materials up by almost fifty percent. And you know, if you think about anything, whether it's the the price of vehicles that have raised, or the availability of vehicles, or the same challenges are with uh, with wind, whether it's onshore or offshore. So you know that we need to be aware that um, the financial uh, ratios for this new power source. We need to be, um, you know, it's hard to predict the future, but you've got to be more creative about solving problems when you are creative with that headwind. So that's that's a challenge. I certainly do. Um, there's been a lot of unpredictable economic um, um, climate kind of attributes over the last couple of years. So that's, I'd say that's a worry. Um, something I'm really excited about is just the, obviously we know that demand for power is going up. I think the electrification um, of uh, America, whether it's, you know, whether it's more servers and computers, whether it's more electric vehicles, whether it's more industry um, that's actually 
driving and driving the more demand for power. So you need more power. And one of the things that you can think about that I get quite excited about is that if you almost change the paradigm or change the thought process of how you use energy, if it was from a a renewable energy source. So if there's no negative associated with using power, okay, that that can stimulate the economy. If you, you know, if you thought, well, you know, power is readily available, it's renewable, it's a a good price, um, you know, actually you can get more into automation, industry, you know, more productivity, more throughput, more employment, more, you know, so I think there's, you know, everything that's going both in the the importance of getting, having a portfolio that is complemented by renewable power because of climate change or the sensitivity to climate change, but ultimately, the increase in our power demand that's on the on the future means that we're going to need all energy sources. It's not just one or the other. It's not about stopping one and moving into another one. It's how do we make all sources of power uh, creation or capture uh, more efficient? And that really is a fantastic thing to lean into for students, whether it's um, uh, kids at school, you know, working in STEM programs that can start to uh, have a vision of what they might want to get into. You know, whether you're 10 years old or whether you're 15 years old or whether you're just leaving university, but there's a really exciting career, um, certainly something that myself and my colleagues have enjoyed in the power business, in the renewable energy business. And so I get very excited about that when I go to schools, when I go to universities, uh, and I, I feel the energy of people wanting to get in, solve problems and be part of um, actually uh, doing, uh, affecting climate change in a positive way and creating a really uh, sustainable energy source and that path to the green electron, as we talked about earlier. Nice. Well, your passion for the subject is infectious, and I'm very excited to see that uh, pilot turbine when it shows up somewhere near shore in the next few years. Absolutely. No, I really, really hope that's going to happen. We're looking forward to it. James Martin, thanks for sharing your thoughts. Thank you very much, Rich. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of Biz Talks. If you like what you hear each week, don't forget to rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on social media at Biz New Orleans. For more information or to contact us, please visit bizneworleans.com slash biztalks.